This podcast is produced by Visionary Studios. Hey everyone, I'm Mitchell Rail, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That. Today, I am here with my friend Matthew Mata. Welcome Hello. back. How are you? Doing so good. Thanks for being here to co-host with me today. Anytime. But today, we are joined by someone you guys may have seen on TikTok last month who went viral after he spoke out against his aunt, Vicky, who broke down in tears on the house floor. But he has much more to his story than that, so I'm so excited to have Andrew Hartzler here with us. Andrew, welcome to the pod. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm good. Thank you for being here. So, Andrew... For those who maybe aren't familiar with you or those who maybe just saw you come up in their feed and just saw you explain that situation with your aunt, do you kind of want to give a little bit of backstory on who you are and where yeah. you're from? So I am 24 years old. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I grew up in a really religious home, deeply conservative. Um, like growing up being gay was the worst possible outcome that I could have been for my parents. A lot of people know me as like the nephew or Aunt Vicky's relative, but I am a lot more than that. So I grew up in Kansas City in a small town, like actually like 40 minutes south of Kansas City. Very religious, um, like evangelical. I was there until I went to college at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I graduated a year ago, and now I'm in my gap year, awaiting grad school in the coming fall. Growing up in, like like you said, like in an evangelical community, like how did that sort of like shape your early childhood and middle age coming out? Okay, not middle age. We're so young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Formative years. You we know? are young. Yeah. And we're still young. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I had an older cousin, and he was gay and he was like the outcast. And I remember when he was like heavily involved with the law, like getting into like legal trouble. And I remember hearing stories about him and my mother framing that how he behaved was common with gay people. So like he would like get arrested for stealing or something like that. And my mom would say, oh, that just kind of goes with being gay and me I'm like six seven years old at the time thinking like wow like so all gay people are like thieves and they all do drugs and they all steal cars and stuff so whenever I started coming into my own sexuality and figuring out who I was it was hard because I didn't know how my parents would react I mean I guess I did I always like hoped that their reaction would be different Because whereas that was my cousin, I'm their son. I came out to my parents when I was 14 years old. And the first thing that my mother said to me was like, sweetie, no, no, that's how you get AIDS and die. They had a really bad reaction, not the reaction I was hoping for. Prior to coming out, I had like watched a bunch of like coming out videos on YouTube of like really positive reactions from parents, just kind of like having very wishful thinking about what their reaction would be. Ultimately, they sent me to a conversion therapy. And it was this entire process of learning to hate who I was because who I was wasn't acceptable in the eyes of Christianity. And at the time I was young, I really just wanted my parents to like love and accept me. And in my mind, the only way that I would get that was if I was straight. So in an effort to gain their acceptance, I tried 
to like follow what I was being taught during this conversion therapy. How did your family kind of approach that conversation? Like was it kind of a ultimatum, would you say? I actually like had a conversation recently with my father about this. And he said like, you wanted to go, like you wanted to do this. And I said to him like, well, what would happen if I didn't? Like what would happen if I said no? So like at the time when my parents approached me with like saying like, you're gonna go do this and you're gonna see this counselor. and it was never something that I objected to because like as scary as that may seem at the time, I didn't want to think about what would happen if I said no and like being forced to do something else. Like now you hear about um, like the troubled teen programs where they send their kids off for like months on ends to do like insane labor and horrible traumatic experiences. Um, I went along with what they wanted me to do because I was afraid of what the alternative may have been. A conversation you had with your dad recently. Yeah. Do you still participate in any sort of organized religion? Or like how did that initial introduction to a conversion therapy in the name of religion, how did that sort of like dictate your outlook of organized religion in general? Yeah. Recently, like when I talked to my parents, it was because they... I told them that I wasn't going to come home for Christmas. And the reason was because there's nothing healthy about being around people that say they love you, but then at the same time they say they don't accept you Mm -hmm. because of like my parents saying, we don't accept you for being gay, but we love you. Well, that just kind of messes with your head. Um, So the day after Christmas, my parents like called me and they were outside my apartment building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, And like we got into this conversation um, where my parents told me that their problem wasn't that I was gay. It was that I had fallen away from God. So the reason that my dad made that statement was I was trying to convey to them how like being forced into those conversion therapy type programs in the name of Christianity and like all that harm and pain that it put me through, it like really shaped how I viewed Christianity. Like the, the suffering that I went through in the name of Christianity definitely did play a role in my religious views to this day. So what are those views? I would say like, I believe in a higher power, but as to like who that is or what that is, I'm like uninterested. And I think that that higher power is also uninterested. And I also think like socially structured views of religion are often rooted in this belief of a singular higher being. But I think religion in general is just like a sense of community building through a like certain ideology or viewpoint on things. You know what I mean? So I feel like we can build like religious beliefs around a sense of community. And I think that's like mo- what, what modern day religion is going to eventually become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But who am I? I'm not, no philosopher. Here. <laughs> <laughs> My father said to me, he was trying to like justify his like unacceptance with my sexuality. And he said, He was like, you know, my mother wouldn't be happy with me if I was going around sleeping with all these women. And I said, well, dad, you can stop sleeping with women. Like I can stop sleeping with a bunch of men, but I can't stop loving a man. Mm -hmm. Just like you can't stop loving a woman. Mm -hmm. And they tried to like frame it as like sexual immorality, whereas it's not 
about that. It's about like who I love. And ultimately the conversation got broken down to, you can't be gay and a Christian. And I was like, so you want me to live a life of suppressing who I am? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, some people are called to be a celibate. I, I was kind of in shock, like for real, this is, you want me to be a celibate? Um, like, how is that even realistic? No, yeah. And I think it's also like this false belief or misunderstanding of the queer community by heterosexuals when they create legislation, like when we think of like the bathroom bill, um, this belief that we're overly sexualized and all we do, everything we believe in, like all we think about is a quickie. You know what I mean? And it's just like, that's not who we are. We're also human beings. We can contribute to society in so many ways. And it's just like, why are you reducing me to a moment that I have with somebody intimate why like do I look at you that way as a heterosexual no I don't and it's just frustrating I think a part of the reason that like Christians do that is because to them like someone who has like an attraction to someone of the same sex that isn't a sin but in their eyes it's a sin when you like act on those feelings they're basically trying to legislate and stop people from those actions, which in their minds is a sin. Mm -hmm. You also went to a conversion therapy camp, correct, in Tennessee? Chattanooga. What were your experiences like at city that camp? City of Chattanooga. <laughs> yeah. I home in that city. <laughs> it was like daily sessions, like three times a day worship, and then three times a day, like listening to someone talk. And I remember the first like few days like getting really tired and like bored of this monotone speaker like preaching at me for however many hours and like falling asleep and when you fell asleep they would make you stand in the back and like keep your eyes open and if you like like me being someone who's a really heavy sleeper I would stand in the back and just like fall asleep standing and then they would like pour water over your head mm -hmm. to make you like stay awake so that you could listen to how who you are is immoral and yeah it was sounds like torture <laughs> yeah yeah it was definitely inhumane i remember like a lot of kids um i say a lot like a few that i knew there they actually like didn't complete the program like their parents came and like picked them up because they had communicated to their parents like how awful it was did you ever communicate to your parents what was going on yeah i begged my parents to like come and get me, like, take me home. And it's like really messes with your head because at the end of the program, they had like a graduation ceremony that's supposed to be like a celebration because like you've made it. And my mom like did come and attend that. And like, of course I was like happy to see my mother because it meant that I was going home, but definitely something that no child deserves to go through. Your time there, did you like create a connection with somebody who like you felt like was also like, and you're sort of same category of like, we're leaving this knowing we're still pretty oh, queer. Yeah. And we're just going to push through mentally. Like we're going to leave stronger than these people can even imagine because like here we are persevering past this graduation. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually still keep up with her to this day. Like we're friends on Instagram. And I think it was those relationships that really made those weeks possible to like survive. I ended up pretending to be sick for the majority of the time, which worked out. It's because like, if you're sick, then you didn't have to stand in the back of the auditorium. So following that camp, when you come back home, did that therapy 
continue? Like, were those techniques continuing for you? Yeah. My parents wanted me to have like a continued accountability, as they said. So I went to this place called Desert Stream Ministries in Kansas City. I remember when my father first found this place, they said that they wouldn't see anyone that was under the age of 18. And having like a sigh of relief, like, uh, okay, well, hopefully my dad can't find another place. And then all of a sudden, like, my dad telling me, yeah, okay, you're going to go to this place. And it's like, what? I thought they wouldn't see me. I'm too young. Coming to find out, like, my father made a, like, monetary donation to this organization and, like, which is a registered nonprofit or, like, was, I'm assuming it still is, which is just crazy that these places are, like, recognized by the federal government and they receive, like, all those tax benefits that nonprofits This is why we need government oversight and everything. I don't care what anybody says. I love oversight. Like, (laughs) give me oversight. Because stuff like this just slips through the cracks and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, they need to pay all the taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are they getting these deductions for literally practically torturing people? Literally. So what was your experiences like going on from, from that, between then and kind of going to college? What is the life of Andrew like? I originally was going to go to Pepperdine in Malibu. That was like my dream school. Like it was all set. And then my senior year in December, my like father told me that if I went to Oral Roberts University, my tuition would be paid for and like I would get XYZ. If I went anywhere else, I was on my own. And I'm like, okay, what is Oral Roberts University? I'd never heard of it. I ended up going there because like free college made the financial decision, which I'm like, ultimately I don't regret. And I get there and basically I wanted to try like one more time to like play this, play into the idea of like being able to be like straight because ultimately I wanted my parents' acceptance at the time. And I was like, a lot of my actions I was doing for that. Like in high school backing up, I was only friends with girls. And like I had gone through the conversion therapy like in high school and it didn't work. Like it, it basically got to the point where I would try for several months and it would end up where I would feel like I wasn't, I was worthless because like it wasn't working. Um, and basically what they do during conversion therapy is they teach you to suppress your sexuality and that those attractions that you have to someone of the same sex, they call it like SSA, same sex attraction. So like when I would have feelings towards another man, that would mean that I wasn't spending enough time reading my Bible, that I wasn't praying enough, and that basically like I wasn't doing enough. Um, And no matter like how much I did those things, like I still would see someone walking in the street or like see someone in my high school and like, yeah, I would have an attraction to them because that's who I was sexually attracted to and it wasn't working. And ultimately like I would just play the part to get by, to tell my counselor what he wanted to hear so that he would tell my father what my father wanted to hear. So moving forward, when I went to Oral Roberts University, I thought that the key to this puzzle was that I hadn't had like straight guy friends, which I didn't have in high school. So my goal when I got to Oral Roberts University was, okay, I'll try this one more time, get 
straight guy friends to like surround myself with what I was ultimately trying to become. So I like started there in August of 2017. And then by December, I found myself like falling in love with like one of the straight guy friends that I had made. And at the time I didn't know, like I didn't know how to interpret these feelings because I like he started going on dates with this girl and I would become like, you're like, she, she has to go. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're in the way of my man who I'm falling in love with. I mean, you gotta go. Yeah. Like I just had this bitterness towards yeah. her. I'd be like refreshing, fine friends. Like, where are they? <laughs> and it was really toxic. It took me a while to realize like, Oh wow. I'm like finally able to get straight guy friends. And I like fall in love with them. Well, obviously my sexuality isn't changing no matter like who I surround myself with, like I'm always going to be attracted to who I'm attracted to. Um, ultimately, like we were still good friends throughout all of college and beyond. But Do you talk to him today or keep in contact? So fast forwarding a bit, when I was at Oral Roberts University my junior year, I was reported for like having a boyfriend and bringing that boyfriend who went to another university onto Oral Roberts University's campus. And that was not okay because it was deemed homosexual activity. And then I was like subjected to what they termed accountability meetings, which basically was more conversion therapy type meetings. Did that, that happened during 2020, right before COVID and then COVID happened. And I kind of like got swept under the bus as far as like them keeping up with those meetings and like didn't have to go through that anymore. And then I graduated and I joined a lawsuit with the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. And after things with that went public, almost everyone that I knew from Oral Roberts University who like accepted my sexuality and like when I came out to them, it was like, oh yeah, that's that's great. There were a few people who were like, oh, you know, like that's a sin, but I still love you. Like love the sinner, hate the sin type of thing. But that friend included was one of the ones that just kind of said goodbye. Have you heard from any of those people like in recent months as you've kind of been on the rise? On the rise. Well, he's on the rise. On the rise. You've been on like every single publication yeah. you could think of. Everyone's uh. been, you've, either you've been interviewed or they've written, written an article about you. I'm just wondering, as you've kind of been getting this increased public visibility, have any of those people reached out to you at all? Two. Okay. Two people. Has it been a positive interaction? Yeah. Out of the people that I was like close friends with at ORU, like two people have reached out in roundabout way. Okay. Lots of people that I didn't know. How are you who were like also queer have also reached out, um, which has been amazing. Um, I've had professors reach out to me that I had. The response has been tremendous and overwhelmingly positive. I'm going to go back to like college and like talking about kind of like hookup culture in your experiences. Yeah, sorry that, that I like skip no, over a lot. You're good. I mean, I feel like hookup culture is really common. I think it's at least for me something that I was like kind of my first interaction with the gay community like I went to college and Grindr was kind of the first <laughs> exposure to anything gay and it was very overwhelming for me and I kind of realized like 
I don't love just someone just walking into my dorm room and saying, let's do this right now. That's why you go to their house. (laughs) (laughs) But they were in the dorms too. So it it was a very like uncomfortable. So fun. fun. (laughs) Not the bunk bed. (laughs) (laughs) But it put me in like, it just made me feel really uncomfortable. I just wasn't like down for that. It wasn't, wasn't my, my vibe. But for you, when you were, you were in college, like what kind of was your initial exposure and interactions with hookup culture? I remember like going into this situation once where it was one of those things where someone's like, like the door is unlocked. I'm in the basement and like all the lights are off. And at the time, like me being naive, I didn't, I was like, Oh, cool. Like how convenient. And like me going, like walking into this and it just being like a total catfish, like not even like old pictures, just someone completely different. And I remember saying like, Oh, I left my condoms in the car. I'll be right back. Because that was, like, the best I could come up with. And then I just, like, bolted out of there and, like, deleted Grinder for the next, like... 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. However long. Out of his vicinity. It's probably for, like, it. a week. Yeah. An interesting point of, like, sexual practices that religious schools neglect when they have these parameters of, like, not practicing or not expressing yourself sexually is they do a disservice to the students that are queer, that are closeted, because we we put ourselves in these situations. We consciously have to be like, you know what, we're gonna have to take this risk because we can't do this anywhere else and this is the only thing open to us. Like when, like we were talking earlier about prep, you know what I mean? Like yeah. who has those conversations with us like when you don't have those at home? And like, it may be naive, but like a lot of people go to college and don't know what that is, don't know where to go, don't know a clinic to go to. And if it wasn't for my, my RA in college, I probably still wouldn't be on prep. I mean, okay, I would probably be on prep now, but like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I feel like, especially when you go to a very like religious conservative school, like they don't realize like they're putting their own students at risk mentally, physically. And it's just like, how do they not realize that? It's actually like real danger they're putting us in. Like I remember the way that I would do like my HIV test on campus. I don't know, like if your campuses had like the blood drives, but they would do like the Oklahoma blood drives on our campus and I would go get blood because then like four to six weeks later, you'd get a little letter in the mail telling you that your blood was like not, didn't have any like thing, you know, cause they test the blood. Not a good thing to do. Don't recommend. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know what prep was really at that point. So you came out to your parents when you were 14 and then again, your sophomore year of college, as you made your way through college, how did you kind of feel their support go away? And then once you graduated, what was the interaction with your family like? Did you feel like it slowly kind of deteriorated? I like to give my parents like some credit or like grace rather because I've given them like hope as in lying and saying like, oh yeah, I'm straight now. I'm cured, which I shouldn't have had to do regardless, but coming out to them again. So we've been on this emotional roller coaster. And then finally, when I came out to them the second time when I was a sophomore in college, since then, I would say that my relationship with them has like matured. I I don't know if it's gotten like better or worse, but if anything, it's got more authentic, which has been like really a good thing that needed to happen, but they still aren't a hundred percent accepting and there's nothing healthy about being around people who say they love you, but they don't accept you. So when I graduated, I remember my father being like upset because it was kind of like he had this attitude of, well, I paid for this school that you went to and like 
you have all these bad things to say about it. Well, yeah. He forced you to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, in his <laughs> mind, much, yeah. he still to this day will say, like, I gave you a choice. You chose ORU. And it's like, yeah, you gave me. choose free college. Right? Literally. Honestly, I think that my father wanted me to go to ORU because he thought that that was, like, the final seal on my, like, heterosexuality. Like, when you're given with that choice of, like, okay, they're to pay for college, but also, like, as a young person, it's just, like, well, you're also then immediately put in a position, if you say no, of that immediate fear of like, okay, then what do I do? Like, how am I going to navigate life without the support of my family? Exactly. And I think like so often within the career community, we have people every day making that tough decision to be like, hey, you know what? I just can't live with this family anymore. Like, I'm going to go do this for myself. And I think people who do that, I'm just like, I just commend them and just post-graduation. Putting your name as like a gay person, like, publicly how did you kind of navigate that relationship with your parents as that became more and more clear as a part of your identity I really got to a point where (laughs) this sounds bad but I was like well there's nothing left for them to take away so (laughs) might as well like (laughs) yeah follow my passions and like stand up for what I believe in not saying that like standing up for what I believe in like didn't have consequences definitely pissed them off I remember my I forget if it was my mother or father, but one of them saying like, well, I'm straight. I just don't have to tell everyone about it. Why does it have to be such a big deal? And I'm like, you're not oppressed. Yeah. Like literally. <laughs> I'm like, hello. <laughs> There's things that they've required a lot of education on. And I think that honestly, that's a responsibility for all of us. We all know someone in our life who's like older from one of those generations that requires like being educated and if we're at like a family gathering like christmas dinner and there's like you know uncle joe aunt vicky someone that is stuck in their ways and like yes we can remain silent and just like take the beating of what they have to say or we can tell them like what the effect is of their words or like why they're wrong I 100% agree. I I think so many people, though, in our community shy away from that because they don't like confrontation or they're afraid of it. And I'm just like, at a certain point, if we see other demographics that are historically oppressed in society take a stance, it's, it's almost like frustrating to me. I'm like, when are the most socially acceptable group of queer people, which are white gay men, gonna finally be like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna have these awkward conversations every single time I see my family members like that. You know what I mean? I feel like we're missing that gap that's really pushing like pushing us to actually like be where we should be. You know what I mean? So I'm like, if you're the most palpable group of the career community, it's almost like a, you have more of a responsibility to do that, to have those conversations, to force those like Uncle Joanne and Vicky, like, you know what? No, you could say that, but we're going to talk about it right now for yeah. everybody. At least make them listen to you. I mean, if they don't want to like, you know, accept it, they can at least understand it. I think there's a lot of things, even in the gay community, where people judge others' like decisions or choices or the, what they like to do. You don't have to like be like yay, but you can at least like have an understanding and respect for people's differences. I think that that is something that isn't hard to do. All it takes is listening. And I wish a lot of people from older generations that choose to make a joke or a quip about someone's identity or who they love or who they like, rather than making that joke, why can't you just take a pause and like take a moment to listen and understand and maybe have some respect for that person. Because 
in the end, you can yell and scream and do whatever you want, but people aren't going to change. They're going to keep doing that. So you can either waste all that energy doing whatever you want to do over there, or you can maybe have some compassion and like respect for others. I think it's something that's really missing, especially like in the political field and area of, of our country right now. There's no compassion or respect for others. Zero respect in a lot of spaces. One of the most powerful tools we all have is our voice. Mm -hmm. And how we use it can have like really good outcomes or really negative outcomes. It's like based on our intentions. Those conversations are important. So can you sort of describe what thought process went into you joining the lawsuit, like a friend of a friend of a friend knew my story at ORU, pointed me in the direction of REAP, which is the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. And like I shared my story with them about what happened at ORU. And I became a plaintiff in their class action lawsuit against the United States Department of Education, which is advocating for 100,000 plus students at religious universities across the country and myself as well as like 42, 43 other plaintiffs from different religious institutions across the country are like all standing up and speaking out for like the violence that happened to us at these institutions. And what's happening is, let's say you go to college, you apply for FAFSA, you get your Pell Grant, you get FAFSA money, that's federal money, or you like are in the science department, you're in the library and they get like federal grants to like do research or such. Well, then these institutions receive religious exemptions and they're able to freely discriminate against LGBTQ students. Like you might have heard of Title IX protections. Title IX protections protect against discrimination on the basis of sex and sexual orientation and gender. And religious exemptions make it where they don't have to follow Title IX rules. And it's a lot of harm being done. Like you can be expelled, you can be subjected to conversion therapy-like practices as I was, you can be denied admission, denied readmission. Like there was a student at ORU who in the summer she married her now wife and then she was told that she would no longer be a student. She was denied readmission. Um, the following semester. And there's just countless stories of people having all this money that they've invested into college and all this time and that they put into credits that probably won't transfer to other universities because a lot of these religious institutions are greedy and specialized. So it just creates a whole ruckus. It just amazes me about the whole conversation we've been having is this idea that those who are religious or hold religious beliefs are under this pretense of purity, when in fact, we discussed multiple times, all they are in. And it just reminds me of like Jerry Farwell's school on the East Coast, that like where he- Liberty? Yeah. Where like he was just, you know, impure, going against like, you know, like what they believe in religiously. Did you see the documentary on Hulu about the pool boy? Mm-mm. So it's spicy. Yeah, it, it is good. Oh. It was basically like, him and his wife were having sexual intimacy with somebody they met who was like their son's age. It's called God Forbid. I highly recommend it. If, really if you want like a it, spicy little movie. Binge-worthy. Yeah. You know, watch it's, alone. Watch it's, the inter group. it's interviews with the pool boy. So he's like telling the story and like his sister's in it and like how they started a business together. He was flying him out for meetings with Trump at the school and like all this stuff. It's right. crazy. Wow. I think what was so interesting was like how the school 
amassed so much political power and weight because they were religious, they were evangelicals. And even when I would watch these ceremonies where these students would listen to Candace Owens speak, listen to Mike Pence speak, I was like, it's like a delusion in a sense, you know, like a false delusion that like, if you do all these things, you will be perfect. You can amass all this power. But I was like, at the end of the day, the people who are going to have that power, who are going to be living immoral lives under the name of purity, under the name of religion, is just like, they're just as human beings as we are. There's a lot of corruption yeah. that happens at yeah, this just school. Like it's so everywhere. power hungry too. Like, especially in that Liberty case, like he really was doing anything that he could to get that power, that influence. And I think the great thing that came out of that whole situation, which is like, can be applied, I think, to like any school, not just like religious schools, is like, then women started coming forward of like, sexual assaults that started happening that the school tried to cover up because they didn't want to believe them. We, as a society, can like buy into things under this yeah. false pretense. But in reality, they're not really protecting us. They're protecting their bottom line because a lot of these schools um, are businesses. Like, at the end of the day, like when we think of sports, when we think about what happened to DeMar Hamlin, NFL was talking about, okay, I'm going on a tangent, but like they were talking about the playoff schedule. I was like, a man just had a cardiac arrest, is fighting for his life, and what people are worried about are the playoffs. But it's because at the end of the day, they realize it's a business. Yeah. And everything is so financially attached to what we do in America that it's just almost like where then do we draw the compassion to be human beings towards each other. The first thing he said whenever he like came out of his coma was asking if he won, which is like crazy. It's like brainwashing. Literally. You know, at Oral Roberts University, there was a case where a girl got pregnant. Like she and another student were like fornicating and the girl got pregnant. She was expelled because she was violating the honor code of having like sexual immorality. The guy, nothing happened. Even just to think about like with the speaker vote recently, like just if that would have been women that were fighting and like about to lunge each other on the house floor, what would they have been saying? But it's two men and it's all, well, well just guys being guys like that. It, it's, it's rough housing. It's just rough housing. Let alone if it would have been a person of color, it would have been like, we're barbaric. You know, we're, we have short tempers. Look mm -hmm. at us. We can't be civil. Speaking of politics and speaking out a month ago, you decided to speak out against your aunt, Vicky, as she started to tear up on the house floor. For those who don't know, like, where does she represent? And like, yeah, so she is actually no longer a politician. She previously was a United States Congresswoman representing a district in Missouri. And then this past year during the midterm, she decided to like run for Senate and she lost the primary. And when you run for Senate, you can't like simultaneously run for Congress. So she started in the US Congress back in like 2010, 2012, somewhere around there. She had always said that she would run for Senate when she was like ready to retire, because if you lose the race, then you're done. I don't think she's done with her career. But yeah, I spoke out against her as she started crying and making a scene. And I had previously come out to her in February of this past year, 2022. And it was a very like typical response of like, love the sinner, hate the sin. Like, oh, I still love you. But like, well, you know, that's like not what I believe. Yeah. For those who don't know, like she was crying during the Respect for Marriage Act. Her words were like, I urge my colleagues to vote again, to oppose this like dangerous and misguided bill, basically referring to LGBTQ people as a threat to society. And she was like weaponizing her own religion to frame queer people as a threat to that religion, which has extreme real world effects as we saw in like 
Colorado and Florida, uh, what was it, like two days ago, a 19-year-old was arrested for threatening online to kill LGBTQ people. Like there's real world violence. And these young people especially are hearing people in power, framing queer people as dangerous groups. Then that's putting in these young people's minds that we're someone to fear, to oppose, to like act out with violence towards. And it's harmful. So I felt like if I didn't respond to her, words i was complicit so i made a tiktok <laughs> <laughs> and it got a lot of attention yeah um, <laughs> what was it like to see that attention come in and like see that view count go up and like people resonating with your message it was like my first like real experience on tiktok i had like 10 followers i had like one video that had like no was one of them and vicky no, <laughs> she we still follow each other on instagram though oh that's good <laughs> yeah so kind of her <laughs> I, I like check not often, but every once in a while. Can you sort of like walk us through the timeline of making that TikTok? Because like as you saw C-SPAN, as you saw your aunt say these words, was your immediate reaction to go to this platform and be like, I'm going to make this TikTok something that I've never really done before? Was it more like an adrenaline rush sort of like action or was it? It was definitely a lot of thought. It was a Thursday that she made those words on the house floor. And I remember like sleeping in kind of late that day and waking up and someone had like tagged me on Instagram of this account that it didn't have very many followers, not very many like likes. So I just assumed it was an old video, like from 2015 when the Supreme Court had their ruling. And I didn't really think much of it because this kind of rhetoric from my aunt is quite common. And then like scrolling and seeing like queer tea or like other news sources like posting about them being like oh my gosh wait this is right now this is happening so immediately i did go to c-span and um c-span is actually like a really easy to use interactive website shout out to c-span and i watched like her whole speech because all of the videos in the news at that time were just showing the last like 10 seconds where she started to cry but yeah i watched her whole video and like really hearing everything that she had to say about a lot it was terrifying honestly it made me super mad and i could have like picked up the phone and called her i could have texted her but having known that i had already had that conversation that really difficult conversation with her about like my sexuality and like knowing that she knew where her nephew like was and who her nephew like loved and the effects that hopefully she realized her words had on like her nephew that I was like well she obviously doesn't care so it's not going to do anything to reach out to her but I, I sat on it I stirred was there a moment you cried were you like almost like what is happening oh yeah at this moment? no tears are so healthy I have this whole playlist on my YouTube account like sad scenes from gay movies and like <laughs> like Lana Del Rey songs put over like the gay scenes from um, Euphoria with like the dad and whatever it gets me to cry every time um, <laughs> and it's healthy crying yeah. is like super good it literally I like, love it. cleans your eyes out once a day cleans your head <laughs> <laughs> so I stayed up all night, like Thursday night. I was just like literally stirring, thinking like, okay, how do I respond? Should I like write something? Should I like, what do I do? And I, I knew I needed to do something. Made the TikTok and got done with it at like 
6 a.m. posted it and then I had to be into work at like 10 that day. I work in social services with foster kids and I remember before I got in the shower before I went to work it was at like 300 views and when I got out of the shower it was at like 20,000 views and I was like oh wow. That was a long shower. shower. (laughs) (laughs) No it, it wasn't that long it just like pop. I had one video go viral when I was in college and like the, when the views are like really in the algorithm like that, like it just, it just like goes like yeah. 100K in like an hour. Like, the girls are watching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they got their eye on you. Yeah. Okay. So these views are going crazy. How are you processing Wild. it? I reached out to people that I work with at Reap and I was like, yeah, this happened. <laughs> this is going on. Because I like do mention the religious exemptions that are happening in my TikTok. I think at like 11 a.m., I started getting calls. Huffington Post called me, BuzzFeed called me. Where are they finding your number? Honestly, so like the first few hours after that happened, I had my number like on my Instagram profile where you could hit like contact and it would show like email phone number and immediately like like after one text from someone that was like, hey, saw your TikTok, this so cool, it's like, Whoa, how'd you get this? <laughs> Got rid of that. And then this account on Instagram called The Progressivists, they like post progressive news. They have like 900,000 followers. They posted my TikTok on Instagram and then invited me to be a collaborator on it, which I accepted. And then that was when things like really started picking up. And there was literally like a 10 day period where every day I was doing some sort of like interview, podcast, radio something and then it was friday afternoon evening i got a dm from someone from the white house inviting me to the signing she actually didn't tell me when it was she was just like hey we want to make sure that you're here like yes that's awesome i took a 5 a.m flight on tuesday morning and made it to the white house like to my left was someone from rupaul's drag race to my right was like the ceo of this like major national lgbtq organization can you describe a crowd that was at the white house like was it representative of the queer community i think that the white house tried really really hard to make sure that it was like any openly like queer state politician or like council member from across the country was invited like there were like over a thousand people there. And I'm like so fortunate to be one of them. The Biden administration really put a lot of work into that. Sam Smith performed. This other person also performed and sang a song about like rainbows. Everyone knew who they were, but like it was a few generations older than me. I did not know who she was, but she was awesome. There was like this like really cool queer DJ that was there that was like DJing in between the sets. I think like the funniest thing was I had a plus one. My friend Josiah went with me And I would see someone like standing up on the stage and be like, oh my God, Josiah, who is that? And realize like, oh, that's just a Marine. You know, seeing like a really hot person is like, oh my God, that's a a celebrity. That's a famous person. (laughs) Like, oh, they're from the TV show. And it's just another Marine. Like, honestly, the the hot Marines were overwhelming. Serving our country. Oh my God. They are protecting Dude, where's the salute emoji when you need it? Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Take me. Love it. I love it. So you did lots of press. You've been on MSNBC, CNN. When I like Google Andrew Hartz, there are like so many articles come up. Is there like a certain like interview or any interviews that have really like stuck out to you? Like any surprises when it comes to doing like TV interviews? So it was really exciting to get to do live TV like actually in person. I've done live TV previously 
but it was like over Zoom. So when I was at the signing, I like wasn't really looking through my email, but like after it kind of wrapped up, I checked my email and MSNBC wanted me on at seven and then CNN wanted me on at 10. For those who don't know, 7 p.m. is Joy Reid. Yeah, Joy <laughs> Reid, who at the time, like I didn't connect like name and face, but I definitely like recognized her when I met her. Joy was super nice. At the end of the interview, she was like, this is Andrew. He hasn't done much live TV. Give it up for Andrew. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, I try. Went back to my hotel, had like two dry martinis. And then I got picked up to go to CNN and best interview I had ever done. They have a screen underneath the camera so you can like see yourself. And MSNBC said that like their company-wide policy is they like aren't doing glam. So when I was looking at myself, like I looked like we're really strong into COVID restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> COVID, COVID safety is huge. That's the what company. they said. But CNN, like they had a whole glam team and that was fun. That was an experience. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, it's so great to like see like you standing up and like getting this platform and also like using the platform to such like good use and like making your voice heard I think is so incredible and helping so many people so thank you for doing that and thank you for being here thank um, you Andrew it's it's so great do you have any other advice maybe to yourself when you were younger when you were in that conversion therapy space of your life um like in high school is there any advice that you would give that version of you like it's wild to think about like at that time if I knew that like that pain that suffering that trauma would someday like come to where I am now. Like I would have never imagined that. Like in the moment I couldn't have come up with an idea of putting all that to a somehow like good use, you know? Yeah. So I think my advice to everyone would be no matter like what you're going through, no matter what's happening, at some point you'll be able to look back and realize like how those things led you to where you are and made you the person that you are today. And that ultimately like everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reasons are very hard to see in the moment. So you push through, you survive and we're all fighters, we're all survivors. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, that's great advice. Thank you, Andrew. Do you want to give everyone your socials so they can follow you? Yeah. My Instagram and TikTok is at Andrew Hartzler. Let me follow you really quick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And you guys can follow us on TikTok at UnpackThatPod and on Instagram at UnpackedHT. And we'll see you guys next Thursday. Bye, everyone. <laughs>